Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostest, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. Alright everyone, I'm really excited to bring on this guest today. We actually were part of the same article that went viral in the Toronto Star. Was it a month or so ago? Yeah, I think it was a month now. Okay. And it was all around diets and daughters and kind of this conversation between disordered eating and eating disorders. And Kyla Fox is somebody who's an expert in that field. So I kind of got to come on in this article and talk about experience while she came in and talked about experience and a lot more education around the facts. So please welcome Kyla Fox. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I was just saying I was just driving through traffic. So my adrenaline's on like I'm speed talking. So hopefully I (laughs) can settle in and calm down a little bit. Otherwise, it's going to be a 20-minute podcast real fast. (laughs) But I'd love for you to share your story. I know a bit about your work through that article and discovering you on Instagram, but I want to give you a chance to use your voice and talk about who you are and what it is that you do. And then let's carry into a conversation from there. Okay, great. I would love that. So where do I start? So I guess who I am is I'm a mom and I'm a person who has really committed my life to helping people move through the journey of having an eating disorder. I have an eating disorder recovery center that I built after, I don't know how many years, maybe almost 10 years of being in practice as a therapist. Wow. And I was seeing so many clients with eating disorders and feeling like I was holding the therapeutic piece for them, but that they really required so much more comprehensive care. And I Mm -hmm. really wanted to close the gaps in our city in particular, around how to support people who are suffering with eating disorders and disordered eating. And so I would like dream and think and get really angry at times about what was not accessible for people. And I just got so tired of listening to myself talk about the hopes of opening up a center. And so one day I was like, I'm not talking about this anymore. I'm just going to open this up. <laughs> I and love so, that. And so I did. So the center is a full operating outpatient eating disorder recovery center. And a women's wellness program. So people who don't identify as having an eating disorder can also use our services. But really just an opportunity to, I think probably fundamentally, I guess maybe why people walk in the door is because they have complex relationships with food in their body. But Mm -hmm. I think what we learn is that 
they're just people who are moving through life just like you, just like me, and just really trying to live their best life and not engage in harm with food. And so, of course, we talk so much about food in the body and address food in the body in all different kinds of ways, depending on what a person needs. But it's really about helping people live their best, most honest, self-caring life. Wow. That's what we hope to do. I got to ask this because it feels like, I don't know if it's just that I finally started listening or if it's suddenly such a thing, but it feels like we're talking about this more. Have you noticed that there's been an influx of people now recognizing eating disorders happening and perhaps identifying with them a little bit more and more as these conversations have kind of, as I've seen, exploded online? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I really do feel like you, that there's there's a safety now. There's mm. There's more of an openness I think, I hope that this trend just continues. I think there's still, of course, a lot of silence and a lot of shame and all of that stuff that still exists. But I do think that there is a space for, yeah, for people to say it and say it openly and say it honestly and to connect around what it means to struggle with your body. I mean, who doesn't in some way at some time, right? Absolutely. And it's so funny too, because what does it look like? Can we talk about the different forms of it? Because there's a lot of them have only really started to be identified in the last couple of years and greatly undiagnosed. So what are, I don't even know a four off the top of my head. Is there more than four? So it's interesting because I think categorically, we probably understand them under the categories of, you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and things like that. When I think about eating disorders or disordered eating, I actually don't think about them in terms of those categories because Mm. what I've come to really realize is that most people who are affected by eating disorders or disordered eating do not fit nicely into those categories. Wow. So it's always like you're saying that it's usually multiple? Yeah. Or like that there's fluidity, Mm. right? I mean, like it's very rare that a person engages exclusively under the terms of anorexia. Mm. They might eventually get to that place or maybe they stay at that place for a little while, but maybe over the course of their struggle with food in their body, they might vacillate into maybe more binging symptoms or purging symptoms or go back and forth and back and forth. And it's not so clear and concise. Mm. And I think that's why people often feel like, they're not even doing the eating disorder right as far as they're concerned. But really in actuality, I think eating disorder behavior is fluid. I think that it's not always so categorically clean the Mm. way in which we understand things. Right. And I think what that does for people is it actually furthers their secrecy. It furthers their silence because they don't necessarily fit the molds of the certain thing that they might, that their doc might diagnose them as. And so I feel like, when I think about eating disorders, I think about them under the terms of binging, purging, and restricting. Okay. And the different ways that we can move through eating disorder behaviors in those symptomatic ways that are not always perfectly subscribed under those terms. Which I kind of love that you said that because when I take myself back to where I was in weight loss, restriction was something that was highly celebrated. Sure. It was a healthy thing to do. It sounded like a really good thing. And I really identified as somebody like I self-diagnosed myself with somebody with food addiction. I probably more was struggling in some sort of binging. Like I really struggled with overeating and stuff like that. So it sounded like restriction was going to be a really good, healthy choice for me. And it seemed so normalized in what I was doing and the world that I was kind of walking in the messages that I was reading. 
at the end of it, and what I came to realize was obviously it wasn't because I ended up with a lot of food fear, Mm -hmm. a lot of fat phobic thoughts Mm -hmm. and a lot of restriction, like a lot of restriction. And I knew the calories of everything all the time, but I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, which makes it really uncomfortable sometimes for me to talk in the terms when I talk about recovery, my personal recovery was like, I never sought help for these things, but I didn't actually start to get it until somebody reversed the words to disordered eating instead of eating disorder. And I went, oh, yeah, I have that. What is the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders? And is there one? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's kind of like, I get a little tripped up even myself, like thinking about how to answer it because it's complicated, right? It's almost like this bridge. Yeah, and I almost feel like, I think sometimes if people say eating disorders, there's this sense that it's more serious or it's more problematic. But then I never like that to be an indicator because I feel like disordered eating is so deeply entrenched and equally on some levels, very problematic and very Mm. harmful, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like in some ways it lays out a bit of a hierarchy, but I guess the difference perhaps is that there might be, at least the way that I see it, is that if you have disordered eating patterns, there's probably a different level of functionality, Mm. meaning that you're probably living life in a more normalized way without, hold on, see, even as I say it, I I get tripped up a little bit, right? No, I'm not trying to undermine the fact that people are not suffering terribly under under the realm of disordered eating, Mm -hmm. but I think the illusion to the world is that people would look at that person and think that they're totally fine, totally normal, look totally fine, look totally normal. There's probably a a lot more normalization around Mm. the ways that person is actually behaving. But yet internally and psychologically and emotionally, that person is really suffering. That person is under a lot of rules and regulations. That person is like just totally discontent and unhappy and miserable with their body and with themselves in their own ways. But there's varying degrees of that. Whereas I imagine if we think about eating disorders specifically, it's probably much more categorically outlined. Right. That people could maybe more almost like perfectly line into those boxes. Which makes total sense, right? Like I was never somebody who stopped eating and I also never purged my food. So it was like, oh, well, I haven't, I don't have those things. Well, what was your story? I wanted to ask that. How did you even get in? Where did your heart come to be in this in the first place? Well, I feel like I had eating disorder behavior and then acute anorexia and an exercise addiction later on in my teens. But where does it come from? You know, I get asked this question a lot and I feel like part of what I understand about eating disorder behavior is that it's really rooted much deeper in us. Mm -hmm. And it's so beyond, it has nothing to do with food and nothing to do with the body. And we talked a lot about that at the center, but it's really about like what's going on with a person at a much deeper level. Yes. And how food and the body become a manifestation of that. When I think about my own life and I think about why I was so entrenched and preoccupied with food and my body and why I eventually got to a place where I was so deeply restrictive and had so many rules and regulations and was in a really dangerous physical situation. Mm -hmm. I think it comes from my life. I think it comes from my family. I think it comes from my environment. Mm -hmm. And I I came from a really, really loving family. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of a crazy thing. We're always very, very close and very, very loving. But within that very loving experience, it was also wrought with a lot of conflict and a mm. lot of fear. Yeah. And even though I have a very connected family and even though I felt really loved when I was young, I think I always felt really confused because mm. things were very unpredictable at times. 
things were violent at times, things yep. were scary at times. And as a young person trying to navigate the lack of predictability, I think that was just deeply harmful to me. In mm -hmm. addition to the fact that I think I associated love with harm. Interesting. And I think that it's funny. I had a, somebody really early on in the podcast was she worked in a recovery center for drugs and alcohol in LA. And she said that what she found in recovery was kind of similar to what you said is that everyone tried to treat the problem, but they weren't treating the root, which almost always was trauma. So you can't treat, you can't just tell somebody stop drinking alcohol and get them detox and go through these things and send them back out because they haven't dealt with this core trauma. I think what's hard for me is like, I don't always know what started a lot of my own disordered eating, except for that. And I feel this is tricky because even with drugs and alcohol, there's a lot of warnings around them. We see them on everything. There's warnings about gambling. There's warnings on nicotine. There's warnings on everything, but there isn't a lot of warnings on what we happens when we food restrict. And let's use the buzzwords of diet culture. Sure. Now, from my understanding, 95% of diets fail. Yeah. And 25 to 35, is that the percentage of those who diet can go into a disordered eating yeah. or an eating disorder? Yeah. So this is a high risk game that we're playing with very 5% success rate and a 25 to 35% rate of potentially greater harm mm -hmm. and greater recovery. I'm so thankful that I'm somebody who lived in a time where I got to see stories online and start to understand and identify with the fact that, oh my gosh, maybe I have disordered eating. I don't know that I could have even identified it had it not been for some of the conversations that are coming to light online. But a lot of them are also shame-induced and it makes it really confusing for people because we've been existing in a whole lifetime where dieting has been okay. It's been, like I said earlier, a healthy choice. How do we cut through that crap and that shame and really get down to the root of, what happens when somebody does want to lose weight? How do we go about it without potentially causing this risk and harm? And is there even a safe way to do it? Because, well, obviously there has to be, but it's a confusing conversation to have. It's yeah. one that I don't even know the answer to. Perhaps I don't know if you do as well. But when somebody wants to opt to lose weight, it seems like dieting is the realm to do it. How do we nurture this conversation? How do we even go there yeah, it's without creating point. risk? Yeah, that you we know, know exists. It's such a complicated piece. And I think this is where eating disorders and disordered eating are so different mm. than any other addiction. I think if you are addicted to drugs and alcohol, the protocol of wellness is abstaining from use, yes. right? Yeah. So you have this ability of living without using and that you can live your mm -hmm. life fully and richly mm -hmm. without it. Mm -hmm. But you don't have that privilege, so to speak when it comes to food. food. Yeah. So I think, and not at all to place a hierarchy on suffering in no. any way, but it is a fundamental difference in the ways that I think that makes the relationship that we need to develop with food mm. so very complex. Yes. Because you have to have one. Yes. You have to have one to live. And then it also means that you're never able to not be connected to it. Yes. You have to learn how to engage with it. That I think is what makes diet culture really like a huge issue all of the time because ultimately people are coming back to it because they don't know how to be with food. Right. But my feeling is that we don't know how to be with food because we don't know how to be with ourselves. Mm. And so sometimes I think that the reasons why we end up circling around, why we want to change our body in so many different ways is because food is similarly that constant as well. We're always with ourselves mm -hmm. and we always therefore have to be with food. And I think if we don't know how to do either of those things, 
we just continue to cycle around and around and around and around. I love that so much because I think what gets confusing for a lot of people is when we talk about recovery, everyone expects it means like a full weight gain back. And for me, that hasn't been my story. So a lot of people are like, but you're still then identifying, like, would you still love yourself the same way? Had you been back up to 225 pounds, could you do it then? Or could you go back to that? Or why aren't you going back to that? But it really dishonors the recovery part and the change that happens. And the fact that, you know what, back then I was in postpartum, I was probably struggling with postpartum depression and not really identified that. I was struggling a lot with my relationship with food that so much so that I almost used myself as like a disposal, not something that I saw food as some sort of a relationship to have it. I was hiding it. I was eating it a lot. I was making portions for the family and eating a second portion Which while is putting all it away. Disordered eating it was under all the guise dis- of eating disorders. Exactly. It's all part of it. But all I saw was that, well, that was me eating unhealthy. So then the other swing of it being, well, I'll just eat less. Obviously, I found my balance and I'm working towards that balance every single day. But it really gets difficult for a lot of people, I think, to understand it. And I just had this conversation with a woman who's a mother and now in eating disorder recovery. And she's like, people still dishonor my healing because I'm still thin. Mm -hmm. So to be healed from eating disorders doesn't necessarily mean that your body's going to look a certain way. Yeah. And I I mean, I think in the same way that people think about eating disorders just based on what a person looks like, they think about recovery based on then what a person should look like. And Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with food and nothing to do with the body in that way. Yes, yes, yes. And that's where I think we don't understand eating disorders culturally. It's still about vanity. It's still about all of those pieces, but it's actually, that's where that piece around being rooted in deeper things, that's where it comes from. So as somebody who grew up with a sister with an eating disorder, it's hard for me a lot of times to understand how do we even be support people? I think a lot of people listening, they're like, well, I don't struggle with disordered eating, which I'd be surprised. I think almost everybody does in in a lot of degrees. We have like aspects of it or we've at least touched with it or danced with it at some point in our lives. But to watch somebody else that we might see going through it, it can be confusing to know what to do as in a friend or support role or potentially a parent role. What would you say is a great way to be a support to those people that we start to see some of these patterns develop or we're noticing that they're participating in things that might look a certain way? Do we identify it? Do we start? Do we talk to them? What have you experienced as the best course of action in being a support role? It's my feeling really that we need to learn how to be honest about the things that are happening in our life Mm. and that there isn't shame in noticing things and learning how to talk about things Mm. with people we love. I mean, I think we feel like we have to be so hidden and so secretive, but that's where eating disorders live. Yeah. So if we can actually step into being transparent Mm -hmm. and being more forward with the people Mm -hmm. that we love, and that doesn't have to do with being aggressive or pushy or any of those right. things. Like I actually think that when we address people really kindly and really openly mm-hmm. and with a lot of love and care, I think that's when we're the most responsive. Right. And it's my feeling, and I, I really do preach a lot about being transparent and being open because I just really do think that secrets keep us sick. So if we can step into asking those questions of someone, if you feel worried about someone, Mm -hmm. tell them. Yeah. Like, and just tell them. I think it's so true. And it's funny because like in the online world, it's just unsolicited all the time. Yes. I had very few people actually in my relational world that came and talked to me one-on-one. It was a lot of thrown out accusations, which at the time felt very harmful, which is kind of why I asked the question too. 
because at the time I was going through a divorce privately and my body was showing for it publicly. Mm -hmm. And it was like these accusations were like, you're anorexic, you're this. Well, I had no idea that I had anything wrong with me at that point. I had no idea that I was too thin. I just knew that I had this trauma happening that I was dealing with. And those comments were really harmful to my health. Like they actually made me feel so much worse. Right. And so like even that example of saying, this is what was going on in your life. Mm -hmm. You were moving through loss. You were moving through such an enormous space of restriction of of the life that you knew. And then your body was articulating that. Mm. And that's, I think, the way that we try to understand it. So as soon as you like could heal through that and move through that and face that and confront those feelings or, or, you know, just grow out of it, then you had the ability for your body to also represent that. And I think that's what the body does Mm. is it shows the truths of what's happening to us in our life. It ended up eventually waking me up to the whole thing because that was when I got the most compliments on my body. And I was like, well, I'm actually really sick. Like I'm clearly not okay. And it ended up making me more aware of how valued my body was versus who I was as a person and what was going on in the real world. So, I mean, it was a great learning lesson, but I do think that for a lot of people, when we start to have these conversations, recovery and recovery centers sound really, really intimidating. It sounds like we're being put in an institution or it's just something really foreign and very shame-filled. We're having better dialogue now. I really have to say, like, nowadays we are honestly honoring mental health a lot more and more. And it seems like there's so much more of it, but it's actually not. I think you're right. I think it's just the secrets coming out of the dark. But I would love for you to touch on what does recovery look like? And you have an outpatient recovery center. Yeah. So what would it look like for somebody who potentially is seeking help or maybe wants to talk to a loved one about what that maybe looks like just to break down some of the barriers of fear? Yeah, for sure. Well, firstly, like I think it is really scary. And I think the, mm-hmm. the scariest part is probably just getting through the door. Like a lot of people will come in and they'll say I to bet. me like, Kyla, it took me three years to get in here. Yeah. So it's so courageous to even just get to a place where you can say, this is bigger than me and I think I need support. So- Yeah, that's a big part. But Mm -hmm. once you get through the door, so it's my feeling that no two people have the same struggles with food in their body and therefore no two people require the same treatment. So we live in a world where a lot of our treatment is really uniformed in Mm. that like most people who struggle with eating disorders would maybe go into certain programs and be treated in the same way, even right. though they're not the same people. Okay. And so I really opened the center wanting to look at each and every individual and who they are and why they struggle and design treatment for them. So Amazing. the center is, it's essentially like treatment by design. It's an individualized treatment center. Right. So for us, when you come in, it's really about who are you? How are you struggling? What are the ways that we can support you and designing treatment that really will look at those particular needs that a person has? So I think that eating disorders are rooted in what's going on with a person at a much deeper level, emotionally, okay. psychologically, okay. and all of those pieces and doing really intensive clinical therapy Yes, um, to unpack that, whether that's individual therapy or family therapy or couples therapy or right. group therapy. Some people need some of that. Some people need one of those things. Some people need those different things at different times, just depending upon their recovery journey. Right. And then we combine that intensive clinical work with 
the food and body work specifically. So wow, working with okay. a dietitian, really unpacking all the rules and rituals that that particular person has with food. So not just necessarily sitting across from someone and saying like, you need to eat this or not eat this or, right. you know, like those kinds. I think that's what people are afraid of. Yeah. Like being told what to being do. Being told what to do yeah. or like, don't do that anymore. And now you have to go on this particular diet or. Well, that's why therapy scared me in the first place. Because I was like, if I, I'm really good at suppressing crap. So it was really easy for me to kind of live in my bubble. But like my therapist eventually told me, you can't outrun trauma. It will catch up with you. So you can try and do it as much as you want, but it will build up. And it's kind of like that. I've talked about this before, but the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping being that we're just putting everything under the rug and peacemaking being that we clean up the dirt because eventually it piles up and it makes itself known and it explodes underneath. But that's like the restriction. So if we keep restricting everything, we keep pushing it down, like the restriction, like how we would do with the body, same thing. If we keep restricting all this stuff and putting it under the rug, well, eventually what happens? We binge. Yeah, we binge emotionally. Mm -hmm. We maybe binge on food because that's the counteraction to restriction in general is that imploding or exploding. Yes. Right? So that's what we'll do. And I've heard, and maybe you can help me with this, but the reason cheat days feel so good, the reason that our bodies crave something when we restrict it and why it tastes so much better is our brains are actually trying to encourage us to eat those foods again. Is that real? Yeah. Well, famine leads to feast. And if if we don't, the message that our brain tells us comes from the body first. Mm -hmm. So if we're not in relationship with our body, then it's going to trigger, yeah, all kinds of desires if we're denying ourselves. I mean, you've probably seen this with your kids all the time. I see it every day. Like if I say no, flat out no, like what does that do? Well, it invites a desire to want it more, 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 right? So if we think about different ways that we can actually give things, give our body things Mm -hmm. in a really regulated way that has not so much power and not so much meaning, then suddenly we just don't need it the same way. Well, I've seen it first. I used to be such a parent that adhered to this conversation and this narrative of sugar is so bad. Say no to sugar for your kids, right? Like it's bad for your kids. Don't let them have it. And then I realized that every single time they had sugar, they ate so much of it that my daughter actually would puke. Yes, And so I switched it to now they have exposed amounts of sugar Mm -hmm. so that they actually ask for it less. I totally agree. I totally agree. it's wild. It's so fascinating to me because we get really, it's really confusing when it's your kids in play because now it's your children. And it feels for whatever reason, we start to care about them a little bit more than we ever did for ourselves. And it's really difficult to not place these. We start doing it though. Right from the beginning, we start creating restrictions around them because they're like, that's good and that's bad. And I've only in the last few years even learned that there's no such thing as moral values on food. There are just some that are more nutrient dense and some that aren't. But how can we as, you know, we have all these different conversations about being sex positive parents or being like encouragers of their independence and all this stuff. But when it comes to food, it feels like so many of us have it rooted in our childhood and what it looked like then. How do we get, like, we just went through this article together with this diets and daughters, but how do we go through it now as parents? What is your best advice for, you know, healthy relationships with food? Oh, it's such, such a loaded a, it's question. It's so hard, right? Oh my gosh. I just like cross my fingers and hope that I'm doing a good job with my kids. I just think that it it doesn't have to be such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like I think food was a really big deal when I was growing up. I mean, I don't know the right thing to do. Yes. And I don't know the wrong thing either, but I just know that what I try to do, and I'll, I, I can just speak as a mom at mm-hmm. this point, I just try to create a lot of safety mm-hmm. around the experience of food and around the experience of my kids and their bodies. Right. So 
we sit down together as a family and it's like bigger than the food because it's us coming together. Right. And we talk about the day or we talk about what's coming up or we just engage together. And so like food is part of this experience, mm. but it's not everything. Or we try to make food fun and we try to make yeah. food not always have to be so complicated. Like right. for us, it's what we, the kids eat, what the kids eat, we eat. And it's, you know, it's just, we try to just create a lot of normalcy around food. But more than that, I feel like we try to create a lot of normalcy around feelings mm. so that I think that if that part isn't happening, that's yeah. when like the sneaky stuff with food starts yeah. to happen. No, it makes sense. And like you, like I don't, have like a, we don't have this or mm -hmm. we don't do that or food rules in our house. We have every possible kind of food and the kids have access to it. But I think because they have access to it, they don't really think about it or need right. it in that way. Right. Of course, they're allowed treats. Of course, they're allowed this, that. And yeah, I just want them to feel like food is safe and food is comfortable. And I think the most I try to do is just not create a lot of rules and mm. rituals around it, but just try to have as much ease as possible and help them participate in it. I feel like that's been really helpful and healing for me yeah. too. What about picky kids though? Yeah. It's like, I have I one that literally oh, only eats chicken nuggets and fries. Okay, I so what do you do? Her. She's had to learn to cook. So if I make a meal, the rule is like, we're having what we're having. And if you don't want that, you have to prepare your own meal. But when she was little, she was like told that she had some sort of a sensory disorder, which means she, I couldn't get her to eat different types of baby food. Like I couldn't get her to eat more than just like one or two types of food ever. She's almost 14 and she's still eating the, the same, same foods. foods. And so it's really hard because I don't know how to push her because then she just wouldn't, like she would rather not eat than eat something eat she something doesn't like. And not only that, but if I try and push her towards like, God forbid, a vegetable, she will literally, like it, it caused her to gag and throw up. So I don't want to do that. But this mm -hmm. is like, I've noticed as I've been going that this is not an uncommon thing that there can be parents with really picky kids. Mm -hmm. But I want her to have a healthy relationship with food. So I don't want her to feel bad about it. And at the same time, I, I don't know how to explore this. Right. Because if you worry that if you make it such a point of yeah. interest, then it becomes so much bigger than it has to be. Yeah. But yet you also want her to be nourished and nutritionally 100%. sound or whatever. Does she like anything? Literally chicken and french just, fries. Just chicken and french fries. Sometimes like cereal. And has she, she has sometimes. explored, has she ex has explored doing it in her own way? Some of those things that she doesn't really like and like try to create. So it sometimes way. the only time that she actually has ever really experienced other foods is when she's at somebody else's house and they've made a meal and then she has to kind of try it. And then what happens to her? Does she do Usually it? she's like, I'll just kind of like fork it around and like push it to the side. Cause like even tomato sauce on pasta bothers her. So even if somebody's creating, but then she'll eat pizza with sauce on it. So it's really really weird how it's like different, different things. things. But she said to me at one point that it bothered her that people teased her for not eating the same amounts of food that everybody else was having or the same things that everyone else said. She's like, I don't know how to help that. I just don't like other foods. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I feel bad because we go to the mall and I'm like, how do we look right now that we're literally sitting and me and the two other kids are having like an actual meal and she's sitting with like her plate of French fries because it's the only thing in the food court that, that she can eat. actually palatably eat. But it's really hard. Again, like I don't, I'm like, I don't want to create any like bad narratives for her, but it gets really frustrating when it comes to like picky eaters. And maybe you just need to talk about it honestly. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, that's what I would say to any parent. Like you don't want to make it a big deal, but maybe right. you would just want to talk about why you wouldn't want to make it a big deal. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. what it might mean that you maybe sometimes would worry about it because you think about it in this way yeah. or that, you know, it's okay that she's doing that, but these are some of the things that come up for you around mm -hmm. why she would be doing it or what that could mean for her body or what that could mean for 
her social life or... And potentially it might be that she has fear around different foods. Yeah. And then maybe like, would there be, yeah, would there be any way that you guys could come together in a fun way and like explore it? I was thinking that we should go to a cooking class. I'm trying, she's going to high school. I'm like, you need to sign up for cooking class because I'm like, when I was a teenager, that's like how I started discovering different food. Like the first roll of sushi I ever had, I made myself. (laughs) That's the first time I had a falafel. Like I made it in cooking class. I'm like, I think you would love it. And she's looking at me. She's like, unless they're sticking in French fries. (laughs) I don't know. But, But, but I think you speak to an important thing. And it's one of the things that we try to tap into the center, mm-hmm. which is that food is fun and it's connection and it's yes. safe. And there's something very powerful when you can create it yourself, especially if you've had such a harmful relationship with it or you've been yeah. afraid of it, that like food is so versatile mm-hmm. and it's such a beautiful thing to like put a bunch of stuff together and then you create something out of it and people enjoy it with you. And that might be an entry point into helping very picky eaters or just people who have lots of rules and rituals, just recognizing that like living in that way Mm -hmm. is actually just very, very confining. Yes. And it's limiting. It is. And you don't realize, I remember when I was heavily into constricting, let's say for instance, it was a Friday night pizza night, which is typically what we did. And I'd have to make a totally separate meal for myself because I couldn't dare eat pizza. I knew how many calories it was. I didn't have enough in the day to like put towards that. And it made me just kind of like it brought a sadness to the evening mm-hmm. where it was supposed to be celebratory. So when I came through it to the other side, I recognized that I could enjoy a couple slices of pizza on a Friday night. And it made me stop thinking about the food so much. And I actually just got to be present and enjoy the time with my family. So it's not just about all of these things that we identify with our bodies. It's actually how we step out and live beyond them. That's Which exactly I didn't it. realize. Like, yeah. And I love that saying, like, don't miss out on 95% of your life just to weigh 5% less. And I was like, oh. That's literally what I was doing is that I didn't even have birthday cake on my birthday because I was just like, I can't. My tagline used to be, it's not worth it. I know what birthday cake tastes like. I'm going to have to deal with that for the next week. I don't want to have to do that. So therefore, it's not even worth it to me. Like it became that food was like beneath me. And as long as I was the one in control of saying no to it, I was above it. So therefore, I was better. I was recovered from all the binge eating that I was doing before, but really it just swung the other other way. way and I was missing out on so much life. And not only that, but emotionally and mentally, I was tanking. Oh yeah. And this is the thing that I feel like we don't talk about enough is in terms of mental health, anorexia specifically, because we're deprived so much, the death rate is so high. I've actually heard that it's the The highest highest mortality rate of any mental health issue. Which is like, what? Yeah. It is, how are we not? Like we see suicide as being a side effect, obviously of mental illness, but the stats mm-hmm. around it are actually enormous. shocking. Yeah. Like they're enormous. I think it's like a 20% death rate within 20 years of anorexia. I'm like, that's terrifying to me. Yeah, because when you engage in restriction with food, you don't only engage in restriction with food. Like you mm. were saying, you are restricted of life. You yes. are restricted of connection. You are restricted of the ability to be a part of an experience. Yes, You are on the peripheral of every aspect of your life. And what does that do? Well, it makes you feel even further restricted emotionally, more depressed, more isolated, oh, more chills. irritable. Yes. It's all of the ways that restricting food leads to restriction of life in the same way that if you're binging on food and eating excessively to the point of harm, you're also probably like binging on relationships and enmeshed with things that you shouldn't be. And like the binging happens in other places as well. And so it's, of course, it would have the highest mortality rate because the emptiness that exists in the belly is the emptiness that exists in that person's life in every way. And even like going down to what it feels like to be hangry. And it's like that all the time. 
But we joke about that. We're like, oh, I'm hangry. And I'm like, well, we all know what it's like to be hungry. We all constantly. know what that feels like. And then put that constantly. I can only imagine why it's so hard and why the mood swings are so tough and why those people can feel so tough. Like when we see somebody struggling in their eating disorder, it might not look like they're just thin and deprived. It might be in their moods. It mm -hmm. might be in their attitudes. Mm -hmm. It might be their emotional availability. Their capacity is completely different. And these are things that we're only starting to wake up to because for most people, it doesn't look like, like I said at the beginning, it doesn't look like an emancipated person. No. They actually probably look like most of us, like walking, breathing, living. They can be overweight. They can be underweight. They can be everywhere in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I think people with eating disorders and disordered eating, that is actually it, is that mm -hmm. we, they look like us and they look like regular people, all different kinds of people. And that's what it is. And that's why it's hard to notice it. And that's why it's hard to know who's suffering. Yes. Because it's not always visible to the eye. This is where I'm so glad that we're having this conversation and I'll kind of wrap it up. But like we talked about in terms of risk, we haven't really had the opportunity to see that be widely normalized in the world. We're not being given these risk factors on every single front of a diet shelf and all the different words that we're seeing and hearing every single day. But we can educate ourselves more and more. We can wake up to these conversations, which is why I love having somebody like you online that is creating a, an reinforcing a lot of this conversation with an expert level in what you do. So where can people find you? What are you up to next? Is there anything fun happening? Where can people find me? They can find me at Kyla Fox Recovery is my handle or the Kyla Fox Center page as well, which is okay. Kyla Fox Center. K-Y-L-A-F-O-X yeah. Recovery or K-Y-L-A-F-O-X Center spelled Canadian C-E-N-T-R-E. <gasps> Thank you for saying that. I never knew why it was always so different in autocorrect. Yeah, no. <gasps> we're Canadian. Canadian. Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So that's the social media piece. And then, of course, the center is in Toronto. And we treat people from all over the place. Amazing. So people relocate temporarily to yep. be in our care. And we work at a distance with people if that's sufficient for them. Yeah. So, yeah, all those pieces. Incredible. I yeah. love seeing you come and be a part of different mediums. I know you're like part of TV stuff now. You're doing the podcast. Like You're literally ground floor doing the work. Oh. But it takes a huge effort to step outside of that bubble and really share with the world what's going on, too. So, Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for Thank sharing you. your voice with us today and all your expertise. And guys, go follow her because you're going to actually learn a lot. And I hope you will. Even just if you get a chance to read some of the articles she's a part of, maybe some other podcasts, get a chance to see her on TV. There's so much expertise, so many years of knowledge built into somebody who knows it firsthand herself too. So thank you so much. Thank you. Go check her out and we'll see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at The Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.